What role do colleges and universities play in building an anti-racist future? This podcast series, Building the Anti-Racist College and University, seeks to begin examining this question. Through interviews with administrators, faculty, researchers, policy experts, historians, and students, each episode in this series examines one important piece of beginning to conceptualize anti-racist colleges and universities of the present and future. This series was produced as part of a term project during fall 2020 for Higher Education Leadership 7372, Diversity and Culture in Higher Education at Sam Houston State University in Huntsville, Texas, United States. The foundation for this project was Ibram Kendi's 2019 text, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Each student in the course designed one episode seeking to unpack, question, problematize, or dissect a particular area related to building anti-racist colleges and universities. The series in no way is exhaustive, prescriptive, or capable of answering every question. But collectively, the series adds to an ongoing conversation in higher education about anti-racist futures. We hope it inspires dialogue, reflection, engagement, and action on colleges and universities in the United States and around the world. We hope it inspires ongoing work, research, activism, policy, local, regional, national, and international action. We hope it brings us one step closer to an anti-racist future in post-secondary education. This episode is Student Labeling. Uh, uh, Dr. Salson, thank you very much for agreeing to be part of my podcast uh, that will be uh, kind of um, uh, focusing around student labeling since this practice promotes racist ideology in a way of investigating an inquiry to report what research and experts tells us about student labeling. Uh, will you please tell, tell us a little bit about your background, uh, you know, um, of your um, career uh, uh, how did you come up or to, I read your article um, on um, student, you know, at risk, uh, why students should not be labeled as at risk. And how did you come up with the idea of, uh, or, or, or around the student labeling? Okay. Um, well, I'm a professor at Howard University. I've been at Howard since 2005. Uh, prior to that, I was a professor at Southern University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which is also my hometown. Uh, and uh, my uh, training is in counseling psychology. Uh, I did my pre-doctoral work at the United States Penitentiary, uh, where I worked as a, a, a correctional and forensic psychology intern. Uh, and I've also done a lot of work uh, with, um, I was clinical director of a group home. Uh, and, and I've done a, a lot of work um, with education and uh, in educational settings, primarily through uh, training, research, and um, consulting, and social advocacy. Uh, I wrote the article on um, on the the label at risk, uh, and that extends from larger work that I, I, I've done 
uh, that's in my book, uh, No BS, BS for Bad Stats. And the subtitle is Black People Need People Who Believe in Black People Enough Not to Believe Every Bad Thing They Hear About Black People. Uh, so I know that's a, a mouthful, um, but it, it, um, I, I title it that way is because I, I believe that uh, people's belief systems uh, can influence how they uh, treat others, uh, uh, particularly black children in educational settings. Uh, so when we um, use labels, when we uh, indulge in what I call BS are the bad stats, uh, the stats that uh, I talk about dropout rates and truancy rates and um, uh, the percent that's in prison versus college and all those types of things with little context uh, and no compassion, uh, then you end up having a system that can treat children in very um, inequitable and racist ways. Oh, thank you, I agree with you. So over the course, um, as we're um, uh, going through my coursework, we read a lot of authors, and one of them we read Squire Williams and Toot, um, who wrote an article on plantation politics and neoliberal racism in higher education. What they did in their article, they kind of draw uh, parallels with the plantation, uh, you know, ideology and the hierarchical system in the plantation settings, and how that transferred into um, American uh, education system. They showed us that. Um, our um, American education system is deeply, deeply rooted in the uh, concept and ideology of uh, plantation settings. And they draw a parallel and said that, um, like when in plantation in a hierarchy, um, the slaves were labeled. They were given reign to show that one is prior, has a little bit superiority than the other. So, and that's why he draw parallel that that's how we rank the students in our education system. We give them labels and especially like at risk, when we give a, a label to a student um, as at risk, we're basically, um, this is my opinion, uh, in my opinion, we're setting that person up. So telling them you're not successful, you can't be successful, you're set up for failure right here. I recognize you're not gonna succeed. And then he draw, you know, but the, in an article they draw that that's how, you know, um, you know, one label from another, we put also so, uh, priority or superiority because we also label kids as gifted and talented, for example, right? Or um, uh, honor student, you know, that's more positive or um, has a, a, a two students with the two different labels, they're, they're not gonna take those labels as um, equitable, you know? Um, so uh, what, what, what is your take? Like, what are your views on student labeling in general? Yeah, I, I think, you know, generally it's, it's um, it, it doesn't contribute anything positive, I don't think, to the, the educational environment, our, our experience. Um, and I, I, I agree with the assertion of the, the author, there's a, a historical root to it. Um, I think you know it can be argued that it started in in um, in slavery and plantation mentality, uh, but I I think that it's it's also symbolic of of Western culture generally uh, because we we tend to to use a deductive deductive models in in um, Western society, but we we tend to to um, break things apart, categorize. Um, you know, the, 
races in and of themselves in Western culture. You know, everyone has to be, you know, black, white, uh, yellow, red, <laughs> brown. Uh, and so <clears throat> there's a certain um, system of classification that, that, uh, that seems to be a part of the culture. And I think that system naturally lends itself to uh, oppressive actions uh, because if you can segregate uh, into a certain group and label and impose certain characteristics on uh, that person, are 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 those group of people, uh, then you can discriminate in ways that um, separate the discrimination from the, the the person almost, and uh, because you know you you have this proxy the, this proxy for who they are, uh, and so it, it's always best for our children for us to see their humanity and their. Uh, individual, their, their, their individual characteristics and to understand their strengths as well as their areas of, of need uh, without imposing a label on them. I think um, over the years, educators, politicians, and researchers have created, promoted, and recreated, you know, labels and definitions to them, which are not consistent. You know, look through the uh, literature, they're not consistent. Every a researcher kind of tends to do their own definition, what that label means. Mm-hmm. And then I think that they're rooted into wide Western ideology. Uh, that's how they are created because of the wide Western ideology of um, educational system. And I think the, the children or the students, especially in higher education, receive those labels because mm-hmm. they don't fit in this cookie cutter standard that we created. We created some kind of a cookie cutter standard uh, based on a Western um, and white ideology. Now, and every student that doesn't fit in that uh, cookie cutter, we try to put them in a separate groups, which creates segregation by itself because we're grouping the students without even considering their background, how they grew up, their uh, the challenges that they had, you know, till they re- reached to higher ed- education. And we just put them in those little boxes and then label them and group them together. And then they tend to carry those labels throughout their rest of the educational career. Uh, my son got labeled, has two, as I said, he's been carrying these two labels since first grade. He's in sixth grade now. And as, as long as he goes through the education system, he's gonna be carrying those labels for, uh, I don't know, how, you know, as long as they have those labels. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think the specifically like um, one of my not favorite labels, you know, among all the other ones is at risk, uh, at risk label. And we, we label in higher education, we label students at risk as soon as they finish the first semester. We try to use um, a lot of data driven. Um, um, we try to analyze their, uh, you know, how they do in the first first semester at the college. And we kind of use the what's called preventative analytics, you know, kind of to, uh, that kind of, you know, puts a flashlight who those students are. Kind of, and we try to make those um, uh, students successful. We tend to focus on student success or on a preventative analytics, but then we put the label. At, as soon as the student finishes first semester, you know, we tend to label them as at risk and then we try to help them to do this. So what, who do you think, um, how do you think the at-risk labor or labeling in general plays out 
in a higher education, in your opinion? Well, I think it, it um, encourages people to be lazy and thoughtless about what they're really working on. Um, because, you know, any one of us could be at risk of any number of things. You know, um, you know, any of us who, you know, might eat fried foods or, um, you know, take a drink at, at happy hour um, could be at risk of something. Um, that doesn't make us generally at risk. Um, we may need to understand, you know, how much, um, you know, how much cholesterol we'll take, we're taking into our bodies and things like that. Um, but you would have to be very thoughtful in uh, drilling down those specific things. Um, and so, you know, the, the laziness of it and um, the, uh, the, the thoughtlessness in which we approach problems when we uh, rely on that term is something that, that, um, that I find troubling. Um, you know, all students are, have, have things that they need to improve. Uh, all students also have certain assets that they could use in order to gain leverage. Uh, and it's up to us to try to identify, you know, what that is. And so, you know, if you say that a, a child is at risk for behavioral problems because they have been exposed to lead, then that's, that's a you know, that's an that's a adequate use of the term at risk because you uh, haven't used it as a label. You're pointing to a risk factor that you can do something about. Uh, a, a child may also be at risk for um, emotional distress because they are with a racist teacher. So the racist teacher becomes a risk factor. So a lot of things that places a child at risk have nothing to do with the child. So why should the child take on that burden? So, so, so we really have to be um, thoughtful about how we use the word and just understand that anytime we use it as a label, um, it's, you know, we're just not going to uh, be able to to do anything positive with it. Yeah, that draws to my other question that I was going to ask you. Do you think uh, students uh, perceive this at, at risk label or labels in general positively or negatively and why? Uh, you know, I know in your article you mentioned that you did like, um, you talked to as a in-service professional development to a group of students and you pointed out to them their upbringing or where they came from and uh, mm -hmm. You said that um, and how they got there as being uh, teachers, you know, as educators right. from the disadvantaged families and, uh, you know, not so nice neighborhoods or and uh, challenges. And you said that, the, you know, they kind of had to, they reflected on themselves, but they also looked at the, uh, at the point of being resilient. And right. I do believe that people come from uh, people, uh, not people, just students that grew up with challenges, they're mm. more resilient. Yeah. They, they, it's just the characteristics that built up. Um, I haven't mentioned to you, but English is not my first language and English is not my second language either. This is my third language that I mastered. Mm. And that, because the challenge is learning English mm. and being, to be proficient in it, I was resilient. I, I didn't give up, you know, when students uh, picked up on my accent. 
mm-hmm. you know, I didn't give up when I mispronounce. I still mispronounce a lot of words because they make sense to me the way I pronounce it. And um, I didn't, I didn't give up uh, at any point growing up when people picked at me and looked at me and said, this is not how you say this word. I was resilient and uh, look at me, I'm in a doctoral program now. Like I can't, I can't even believe myself uh, being in a doctoral program and talking to you, especially, you know, I would have never dreamed about this growing up that I would be able to interview somebody in English. Mm-hmm. That, that is a huge accomplishment for me. And this could be like something just general for everybody else. Like it's not a big deal, but it's a huge, huge accomplishment for me. So, um, can you talk? Uh, can you tell me about what? What do you think is resilience? What dri- drives students, um, especially with labeling? You know, what what drives students? Yeah, resilience is is definitely um, important. Uh, I think the um, the larger question is is how do we tap into that resilience? You know, so how do we help students to understand that they are resilient? Uh, because the way that our education system is set up. Currently, um, we're much better at exposing deficiencies than we are at revealing talents. You know, so it's a lot of times a school where students learn about everything that they don't do well and don't learn about anything that they do right. And so, so how do we flip that? And the, the, um, the best way to flip that and the, um, the best way to, to help the students to understand resilience uh, is to have more compassion in the school environment. And I, I think that's something that, that we, we really have absent right now. Uh, a lot of educators, particularly educators who work with communities that are much different from anything that they know, um, they don't have the compassion that it takes to really understand their students and to help them to um, help to spur that development. Um, you brought up the example from my article where um, I asked the teachers, uh, you know, if, if any of them grew up in the same neighborhood, you know, how was it that they, they succeeded? And they had to be involved in that type of exercise to step back uh, because at, at that point, they were so far removed from, from, from that community that they refused to um, even acknowledge the positive things that may have brought them up. And, and, and sometimes, um, you know, even people from poor communities, when we have made it, uh, we'll reflect back to our, our own childhood and we'll say, you know, we had a stronger sense of community back then, even though it was a poor community. Back then, it was a stronger sense of community, um, implying that right now poor communities don't have that same sense of community that they had growing up. Um, that's a lack of compassion. Um, when you know, people who say they don't understand a lot, a lot of times they don't have compassion, you know, because ignorance is a, is a crutch. So they'll say, I don't understand this. I don't understand why her mama sent her to school dressed like that. I don't understand uh, why he never has clean clothes on. I don't understand why she can never come to school on time. Uh, it's a dress code. I don't understand why they violate the dress code. Um, so, you know, all of all of this not understanding, uh, if you want to understand, there's some pretty easy ways for you to understand. You have a heart-to-heart conversation with the child and, and say, you know, I noticed that 
when you come to school, your hygiene isn't where it needs to be. Um, help me understand what's going on. You know, that's, that's all it takes is that simple conversation. Um, and you might find that, um, you know, there's some reasons that you, you could understand, you know, it's a, um, a, a, a separation going on right now. The child may not know where they're going to sleep from, from day to day. Um, uh, when, when they are court ordered to stay at a certain parent's house, they don't have the stuff that they need there, you know, just all types of things could be going on in the lives of the, these very young and vulnerable children. And instead of us taking the time to understand what's going on, uh, we just, you know, kind of harbor uh, all of this resentment and antipathy uh, towards them. So, so that's the that's the thing that's that's needed. And when you when you when you you know take the time to understand, you know, like if a child continues to come to school late, uh, you know, if, instead of saying, you know, I don't understand why they can't get to school on time, you have that conversation, uh, and you find out that uh, they're taking their little brother to school every morning before they come to their own school. And sometimes the, 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 the doors don't open on time at the, at, at the little brother's school. If you find that out, then you can help, to, help them to work through that situation, help them to troubleshoot, and, and that's where the resilience will come from. And then so when they grow up, they can talk about how they had this complicated situation and they were able to navigate through it with our help. Uh, so, but it takes, it takes compassion and care. Uh, to to go that extra mile to to help to help to reveal that that resilience to them. We've been uh, reading Ibram Kendi's book. I don't know if you had a chance to. Um, it's called How to Be an Anti-Racist. Mm -hmm. uh, throughout our coursework, that was our um, you know, and Kendi challenges us to think and reflect and how we how to, how we can make a change and a shift from racist and uh, ideology to anti-racist ideology. And one of the things he mentioned is that. In a lieu of um, responding to cultural racism, um, um, some of the labels, or, you know, such as educationally disadvantaged, economically disadvantaged, or at risk, they kind of shifted, um, uh, trying to show that there is a shift from cultural racism. But then at the same time, the narratives and institu institutions keep focusing on the way on, on the individual, you know, with this uh, labeling practices. They changed the names of the labels, but they didn't change the approaches, in other words. Um, what are your views? Um, do you think labels promote racist ideology and why? Yeah, they, they certainly have the potential to. Um, there are some labels that's rooted in racism uh, and that can perpetuate racist ideology. Um, and there's, there's also labels that perpetuate a lot of other types of isms, including sexism and homophobia and, and different things like that. Um, and, and so I, you know, I think that, that we can look at a lot of things through the broader view of, of race and racism and, and uh, particularly systemic racism. And so, so, so yes, I, I, think, um, I think being an a anti-racist is important uh, to understanding why labels are problematic. So do you think, um, uh, you know, especially in a higher education, how can we shift from uh, this wide Western norms 
uh, that we created of labeling to not labeling at all. Another author, um, uh, one of the articles that I also, uh, you know, researched um, uh, by Dr. D. White called Are Labels Preventing Students from uh, Succeeding? He proposed not to label students. And he said, point blank, uh, students don't need labels to receive extra work. He kind of elaborated that the educational system labels students so we can give them, we, we make this good thing. We're going to label a student so we can give him extra services or extra support, tutoring, advising, whatever, counseling, you know, whatever it intakes for that student to be successful. And he, uh, he just said that uh, labels ultimately put students in the little, little boxes and we don't need to label students to provide them with extra services or extra support. Why do we need this custom of labeling students, you know, so that we can help them. Um, so do you think we can shift from wide Western norms of labeling at all? In a, yeah, especially in yeah. higher education. Yeah, and the, the irony is that that um, a lot of the labels that's associated with children that need the most result in them getting less. And the labels for the students who are supposed to have certain gifts and talents, they end up getting more. So if you look at a gifted and talented class versus a special education class, I mean, the gifted and talented class got all types of visual aids and computers and uh, laboratory equipment and uh, this rich environment, uh, the, the highest qualified teachers. You know, you may have a teacher with a PhD teaching uh, high school students if it's a gifted and talented class. But then the special education class, you'll see this smaller class, nothing on the wall workshop the worksheets instead of textbooks no laboratory equipment uh so 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 that's the that's the paradox um uh, you would you would expect things to be flipped right right if, well, if, the, if these talented students already have it then theoretically they need less they don't need the teacher with the phd the ones in special education needs it so so i i think you know that's that's evidence that that it's a um is more of a game, you know. It's more of a um, a con uh, than them actually wanting to provide anything special uh, for these students. Um, but yes, do we do we need them? No, you know, we need to understand the the the, the assets and the needs of all students. That's it. Uh, and yes, some students need things that other students don't. Uh, some students have talents that other students don't, um, but there's so many that you can't really lump them into this category, especially uh, categories that are so broad uh, that you would catch, you know, a, a, a good percentage of the school. And so we do have to be a lot more innovative in the way that we identify these needs. Um, Yes, students need to be accommodated if they have certain needs, uh, but the labels just aren't giving us the, the ability to accommodate those needs. You pointed out, uh, and I'm gonna draw a parallel with the Candy's um, uh, book that we read, 
So mostly what Candy did in his book, he said, this is racist and this is how you should think, say things anti-racist. So when I read your article, I draw parallel too. As you mentioned a, a phrase, more resources uh, you know, for at-risk students and uh, you paraphrased it and suggested more resources to reduce the risk factors for students. So where I think I draw parallel of that um, more resources for at-risk students being a racist phrase and then more resources to reduce risk factor for students being an anti-racist way of approaching it. Will, yeah. you, uh, uh, will you please tell us um, how did you come up with, the, you know, what was the drive into paraphrasing this? I know um, uh, from your article that you were a uh, consultant for Tier one commissions, um, you know, report, and that's you, know, you also made a suggestions for them because they couldn't define what at risk is or right. what's the definition for at risk. Will you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. Well, what you want to do is shift the risk away from the person and put it towards situations, because uh, uh, the risk the risk factor isn't associated with the person. Uh, you know, there, there are endogenous characteristics and there's exogenous characteristics. Endogenous are things that are more a part of who we are. You know, it's our personality, it's our DNA, um, it, it's our, our families. Um, but exogenous are things that are external to us. Uh, and, and so, you know, like if we look at, at depression, um, through science, there are some biochemical reasons why some people are depressed, but then there's also some external reasons, uh, you know, like um, a, a, a harsh relationship situation or abuse or, you know, all these types of things. And so with risk factors, risk factors should never be looked at as something that's endogenous. Uh, if you look at it as an endogenous characteristic, uh, then you're going to approach it in a way that's not conducive to, to change, uh, especially system change. Uh, so, so risk should always be associated with a situation. Uh, what is the situation? Um, what, you know, whether it's um, uh, racism in the environment or lack of adequate resources, um, you know, it could be any number of things, but the, but the, the risk, um, you know, there are situations that place children at risk for a variety of different negative outcomes. And we have to identify that and make sure that when we talk about risk, we're talking about those situations. So do you think we can, uh, like especially colleges and universities, do you think uh, we, uh, we can step away from using labels for students? Yeah, we can. Um, We've, we've been having this conversation for a very long time, though. Um, you know, we can look, you know, all the way back to, um, you know, the 80s and 90s, uh, where there was a critique of, of um, you know, this term at risk. Uh, and there's been various ways in which people have, have tried to counteract it. And I, I think a lot of those things have, have caught on. Um, uh, there's a... a um, an organization uh, that promotes the term placed at risk uh, to um, take the, the emphasis away from the child 
and more on the system that places them at risk. Um, and, and so, you know, that um, is one way of looking at it. Um, I've also heard uh, the term at promise. Um, I've never been that fond of that, but I understand, I think, I think the people who promote that, their heart is in the right place. Uh, I think in practical terms, if you are telling the child they are at promise instead of at risk, but you're treating them like we typically treat children that we call at risk, then the, the children are smart enough to know what you're doing. Um, you know, it's, it's almost like gaslighting. You know, it's, it's like if, if you have an a, abusive husband uh, and um, he starts calling you sweetheart, but he's saying, you know, he's doing the same bad things that he, he was doing. Sweetheart isn't going to, to uh, make the situation better. So Ed Promise is not going to make the situation better if you're still putting them in special education classrooms and, you know, all those types of things. Um, but, you know, all of these are strategies that's, that's been going on for a while. Um, uh, my, my strategy is to um, not use it at all unless you're identifying a situation. Uh, yeah, and that, that, was, uh, I, um, that was my other question. Do you think, um, uh, and you answered it, um, do we, I don't, I, I believe that we should not promote label and we should not, because um, sometimes uh, people also get caught up um, from paraphrasing the labels or changing the labels. So do we even want new labels to emerge? Mm. You know, I pose that question. Why should we, uh, even if we move from one label, you know, do we want to create new labels? That don't doesn't the practice of creating new labels so after a couple of years you know when we look at back maybe now we think just like you said at uh at promise mm -hmm. intentions are good but after a couple of years uh you know when we look back uh, don't we still put the kid uh, the students in a cookie cutter you know some kind of uh, boxes with the labels do you think labels maybe you know um do we even need to um what do you think do we even need to, uh, is there a need for new labels to emerge do we think that do you think that labels may be uh, you know even anti-racist labels do we need to create them or do we should step away from uh labeling period a student has to be a student an individual you mm -hmm. know uh one of a kind not just like put in a, some kind of a box or um uh, you know, practice where we group them together and then try to find definitions to them because at that point we're not sure, you know, why we created the label in the first place. Yeah, I think there's a, a larger issue of, of identity uh, and we, we want the, the children to develop a, a positive identity uh, for, for who they are. Uh, and, you know, these identities can come from a lot of different ways. Um, uh, they can come from organizations, they can come from clubs, they can come from, um, um, you know, performance, you know, so, um, you know, if a, if a student um, has demonstrated that, you know, they're making, you know, straight A's, um, it's okay to call them an honor student. Uh, I think it's okay to call them an honor student. Uh, if a student is participating in athletics, is it okay to call them a student athlete? I think that's okay. Uh, you know, if a, if a student, uh, you know, like myself, I was a part of the newspaper staff. Um, so, you know, I got an identity from that. And so, uh, you know, I was okay with people calling me a student reporter. 
you know? And so, so I think, and, and a lot of times if they don't have an identity, um, they can make one up. And, and sometimes, uh, you know, those are um, not so good, you know, um, you know, being a, identifying as a member of a gang, you know, Crip our blood, uh, that's an identity. Uh, and a lot of times children, um, particularly teenagers, they'll formulate that identity because uh, they, they don't know who they are. They, they need that sense of self. Uh, so in a way, children need some kind of label. They just need a label that is going to affirm the best of who they are. And so, you know, that's why, you know, functional school environments have students who are participating in more clubs and activities. And they have, uh, they, they have ample opportunities for them to exert leaders, you know, our leadership. Uh, and to uh, to identify to, to to gain that identity, you know, students who are in SGA, uh, they are student leaders. It's okay to label them as student leaders, um, but any label that implies something negative, whether it's a label of being at risk, or a label of being a crip or a blood, um, that's not going to uh, um, lead to uh, that actualizing potential that we want out of children. Um, the, um, the the journey to being your best self is um, it's a, a a personal journey um, that requires, like you said earlier, a lot of resilience and your identity and being able to say who I am uh, is a very important aspect of that. And so, when, in the school environment, we have to be mindful. That, that every student is trying to understand who they are, what makes them unique. And so if we give them a label that's associated with a negative outcome like at risk, then they can internalize that in a way that stunts their actualizing potential. Uh, but if we give them other labels like debate team, math whiz, student leader, gospel choir singer, singer, student athlete, you know, all these types of things, um, you know, the more that we can spread out those types of labels in our school, uh, then the more actualizing potential we'll see in the students. Yeah, I agree with you that the promoting the positive, you know, uh, and pointing out what they're good at. Uh, when I went to my um, uh, master's degree program, I was trained to be um, K-12 setting um, instructional leader. And one of the things I like, I, I like to focus on was that as a teacher, I envisioned myself to focusing on uh, students' positives. When, like if you have to criticize a student, I, I used to say uh, it's two positives for one negative comment. If you have to say you did something wrong, you have to give them two affirmative positive things that they do great to lift them up um, and... Um, uh, to to make sure that students also focus on what they are doing right, what their what what their potential are, or what they can do. I did not practice. Um, I just went through the training. I'm a, a, in my profession, I'm a, I'm, I chose to be an administration uh, in administration. But um, I, I believe in um, in education, and I believe that we collectively, not one person, everybody has, a, you know, community and country has to come together to make changes because we need those changes. 
so um, uh, how do you um, envision overall, like what is your vision of uh, building an anti-racist college or university and kind of um, what do you think, uh, you know, we can do uh, as future educators, you know, as somebody like me that's still in a program and studying uh, with uh, aspirations to make a change when I graduate or change the world? Mm -hmm. What is your advice to, uh, uh, to the uh, to us, um, how can we, uh, you know, build an anti-racist college and university uh, without promoting labels, you know, and without putting, uh, segregating and putting kids? Who do you, who do you think receives the most labels was my another question that I was going to ask you. Yeah, well, you know, the, um, in the, the book that I, I published last year, uh, I mentioned three things that's important to uh, developing uh, a, 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 a an environment that's conducive to learning. Uh, so the, the first thing is having good data. The second thing is a thoughtful analysis, and the third thing is a compassionate understanding. So, so those are the the, the three most important elements. Um, so we we have to have the best information in order to make the best decisions. Uh, um, and, and so, you know, using good data, data that's holistic, that helps us to understand patterns and, and um, make, helps us to, to make connections, um, that's essential. But then from there, we need to have a thoughtful analysis, uh, an analysis uh, that uses growth indicators, that uses longitudinal analysis, and, and also that combines qualitative and quantitative together. Uh, and then finally, we need a compassionate understanding. So we need to understand things from the standpoint of um, uh, the empathy that it takes to understand people who are not like you and understand why certain undesirable behaviors have a very logical um, origin uh, and understanding how to motivate people towards change. Uh, so. To me, those are the most; those are the three essential things to, to creating a more equitable environment. Thank you. Um, so, do you have anything else to add uh, that you want me or my, you know, uh, uh, be part of the episode of, of how can we move forward from not or positive labeling or not label not labeling to positive labeling, maybe. Yeah, I can't think of anything else. It's been a good conversation, and uh, I think I probably g gave you all more more content than you'll need for a thirty minute episode. So I don't want to give you anything else that you have to <laughs> pare down. But I I, I appreciate uh, your perspective on this and, and everything that you're doing. This podcast series was produced by Paul Eaton. Assistant Professor of Educational Leadership at Sam Houston State University, in conjunction with doctoral scholars enrolled in Higher Education Leadership 7372, Diversity and Culture in Higher Education, during fall 2020. You can contact Paul Eaton via email at pwe003 at shsu.edu. Content and perspectives presented in this series are intended for educational use. You can download a copy of episode transcripts and show notes at http colon backslash backslash bit 
bit.ly backslash anti-racist college. The views and opinions expressed on this program and series are those of the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Sam Houston State University. Thank you for listening. This has been an episode of Building the Anti-Racist College and University. Music